Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up, please, to Acts, the 15th chapter. Acts chapter 15, we're going to read some verses there in just a moment, and that'll help to set up all the things that we want to talk about tonight from the Word of God. So let's all be looking together in Acts chapter 15. As you're turning there, I will say how great it is to see everybody this evening. I'm thankful for the fact that you arrived here safely. It is my understanding. I haven't been outside for the last couple of hours. I've been here at the church building, and so it is my understanding that it is starting to get uh, a little icy out there, but we're glad that we're able to be here tonight and uh, be able to be in a nice uh, place like this to be able to worship God and to uh, encourage one another through our worship and through our, our study of God's Word together. Appreciate the things that Glenn said in his opening prayer because it does uh, well set the stage for the things that we are studying about tonight. Let's read together in Acts chapter 15. I'm looking here in verse 36. In Acts 15, this is after the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas and they're making plans for the second journey. In Acts chapter 15, we're told in verse 36, Acts 15 and in verse 36, the Bible says there, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. I must tell you that in the department of things that I did not expect to hear in the news this week would be something along the lines of Batman and Robin have decided to go their separate ways. They won't be fighting crime together anymore. Or that Tonto and the Lone Ranger, they decided to break up. They're not going to work together. Or maybe to find out that peanut butter and jelly, they are no longer compatible with each other and they will not be found on my sandwiches. And I sure didn't want to read as well that the original missionary team had a fuss and they ended up parting ways. But that's what happened. And you should know that this is not the first time that brethren ever disagreed in the Bible. And it sure wasn't the last time that it ever happened. I'm thinking, for example, about those two sisters in the book of Philippians who weren't getting along and Paul had to call them out. I'm thinking as well about those brethren who struggled with Timothy as he was laboring with them in Ephesus. I'm thinking as well about that church at Corinth that had all kinds of problems and division going on and Paul had to write them a very strong letter. In the Bible, we just see repeated examples of brethren disagreeing and arguing from time to time. And let's just tell the truth, that still happens today. That is not a phenomenon that is peculiar to the Bible and to first century times. That still happens here in the 21st century. There is a very human side to the church relationship that it's not pleasant, it's not good, we don't like to think about it, we don't like to address that, but it is part of the reality of imperfect people coming together and trying to be the body of Christ. Which is why this evening, this is kind of the second in this series today on disagreements and fights and fusses, I do want to think just a little bit about how to have a fair fight with our brethren. And once again, I want to be clear, please do not allow that title to mess with your mind any. I don't want anybody to get the impression that somehow God is okay when brethren fuss and fight. God is not pleased when that happens. He most certainly is not. Rather, the title is simply just an acknowledgement of the fact that it happens. 
It does occur. God's people have disagreements. They argue from time to time. And what we want to be about is we want to be about the business of preparing ourselves so that we can handle those disagreements in a godly way. Because just as we talked about this morning, as we talked about the marriage relationship, God has most certainly provided us with instructions. He's given us examples. He's laid forth principles in His Word that are there to help us whenever those conflicts arise. And I believe that if we will implement those truths into our hearts and into our minds, then we can work through our disagreements. In fact, we can work through any disagreement in a way that unity is still maintained. And ultimately, God is glorified. That is priority number one. And so, let me set before you tonight. I did seven rules this morning. This evening, I'll do six rules. Six rules for a fair fight with our brethren. And that just needs to begin right here with rule number one. This is absolutely where it has to start. When we disagree with our brethren, we need to start by being respectful. That just has to undergird everything. We're going to be respectful. Look with me in Romans, the 12th chapter, please. In Romans chapter 12, we won't be working out of just a single text like we did this morning. We'll be in a number of places, so follow along with me. In Romans chapter 12, I'm reading here in verse number 10. In Romans chapter 12 and in verse 10, in this list, these marks of what a true disciple is all about, Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and in verse 10, he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now you know and I know that our society has become increasingly divisive and intolerant. Which in many ways is ironic because we are living in a day and in a time when, well, being tolerant has become really, really trendy. And while there certainly has been some progress made in how we treat people, different segments of society, I think progress has certainly been made in how we treat the like people who are handicapped. Progress has been made in how we treat our veterans. Progress has been made in how we treat people who are of a different skin color than us. A lot of that progress, I'm afraid, it goes unnoticed by our society as a whole. And why is that? Well, because there's just so much venom. There's so much vitriol in our world. There's so much disrespect in our world. Because if you disagree with me, if you don't hold the exact same position that I hold on this and that or the other, or in fact on 100% of everything, then well, well, I'm just going to write you off as being hateful. In fact, I'm going to write you off as being hopeless. Which means in a society where there's a lot of divergent ideas, and there's a lot of differing views about things. What that means is, is that means there's a lot of writing everybody off. But i got to tell you, if that's a problem out there in the world, then surely that can't be a problem for the people of God, can it? Paul says in Romans 12 and in verse 10 that we're going to be the people instead who are showing and are defined by our love for one another. In honoring one another. In fact, we're going to not just honor one another, we're going to outdo one another in showing honor. That's another term for respecting one another. And what that means then is that within the church, within the body of Christ, if your viewpoint is different from mine, I will not demean you. I will not degrade you. I will not shout you down. I certainly will not treat you as if you are my enemy. In short, what the Bible is teaching us is that it is possible for brethren to disagree and yet still have respect for one another. Let me add to that what Paul says over in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, once again, in context, Paul is addressing how Christians treat one another 
in the body of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, look in verse 3. In Philippians 2 and in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's about respect, isn't it? That's about treating each other with dignity. And when we treat each other with dignity and respect, that ends up oftentimes taking a lot of the starch out of our conflicts, doesn't it? If we are having a disagreement about something, you know what? I could be right. I could be mistaken. I could be just flat out wrong. It could go any number of ways. But you know what? If we're disagreeing about something, regardless of whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, the one thing I can be is I can be respectful. Always. That's where a fair fight has to begin. And that then continues with rule number two, and that is we need to recognize what the enemy is whenever we are disagreeing, and that is, that is anger. That's the real enemy whenever we're having disagreements and disputes and arguments. That's what I need to really keep my eye on. Look with me in James chapter 1. We talked a little bit about anger this morning, and we noticed some of that... I'd like to use James this evening. In James chapter 1, look at verses 19 and 20. In James the first chapter and in verse 19, James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James is telling us, and you can kind of keep seeing how he develops some of these ideas over the next couple of chapters, Anger is a strong emotion. It has the power to to separate people. It has the power to destroy relationships. Anger has a way of just kind of clouding our mind. It affects our judgment. Anger many times causes us to try and justify our own ungodly behavior. Well, you know what? The reason I did that to him is because he made me so mad. The reason I said that to her is because she made me mad. In fact, hearing that word mad, Maybe just an understanding of the word mad might help us to understand some things about anger. You do realize that the word mad originally didn't have anything to do with anger or fury or wrath. Anger originally, excuse me, mad originally had to do with with crazy. Being out of one's mind. Being insane. We say they took him to the mad house. That doesn't mean they took him someplace where people were just really, really angry. No. People were out of their mind in that place. Or watch out, there's a madman on the loose. There's a crazy person on the loose. And so when we talk about anger and that word mad creeps into our vocabulary, what are we admitting? We're admitting I was mad and I lost my mind. I was angry and I began behaving like a crazy person. That's what anger can do to us. And the Bible is just littered from cover to cover with examples of what anger can do. Think about Cain in the very beginning. Cain got angry and he killed his brother. What? That is insane. What are you thinking? Balaam, he got so angry, so mad, that he started having a conversation with a donkey. That doesn't seem like very rational thinking, does it? Saul got mad. He tried to kill David multiple times. Naaman got angry and his anger nearly cost him being healed of his leprosy. That seems really crazy and foolish. 
Jonah got mad. Talked about Jonah a couple times in recent months. He got so mad, he started arguing with God. That seems really crazy. Again and again, the Bible shows us how anger affects people. And again and again, the Bible warns us that anger is oftentimes the real enemy here. Now, I want to be clear. That certainly does not mean that anger in and of itself is always wrong. We noted this morning from Ephesians 4 and verse 26, Be angry and sin not. Sometimes anger is appropriate. Sometimes anger is even justified. But listen to me. When brethren disagree, anger is not coming to that party to help anybody. When anger gets brought into that equation, it's not going to lead to someplace good. Instead, it's going to make things worse because the challenge then becomes, I've got to somehow try to keep my tongue in check with what I'm saying. I've got to try to keep my mind in check so that I don't go crazy. And furthermore now, I've got to try to keep my temper and my emotions in check. Let's let Solomon have the last word here. Look in Proverbs, please. In Proverbs chapter 17, I'm reading in verse 27. In Proverbs 17 and in verse 27, there the wisest man at that time on the earth said this. Proverbs 17 verse 27, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. You know, this is one of those few places in the Bible and one of the few places in all of life where God says you should actually strive to be a cool person. Sometimes we kind of talk that down. Hey, don't, don't try to be a cool person. Try to be a godly person. Well, in this instance, God says be a cool person. Be cool when it comes to your temper. And just honestly now, just think about this practically. If Cody, for example, if Cody comes to me and he says, hey... I disagreed with what you said and what you taught about fill in the blank. Do I really think that Cody is coming to me because he's trying to provoke me? Do I really think that he's coming to me because he's wanting to start just a big old fight with me? Is that really what he's trying to do? Cody's my brother. If Carolyn comes to me and she expresses and voices some kind of a disagreement with something that I've said or something that I've done and she says, hey, I'm not really sure that I agree with fill in the blank. Do I really think that she's just trying to, just trying to cause problems? That she's just trying to create friction and, and difficulty? Of course not. She's my sister. Why then do we become defensive and we allow anger to get into the driver's seat and it starts driving the train simply because our brother or our sister disagrees with us? It is only when we have a cool spirit, that is an even temperament, that we will be able to disagree agreeably. That's an essential element for a fair fight, which then leads to rule number three. And that is, rule number three, we need to understand about the danger of running to extremes. I want to illustrate that point for you from the book of Joshua. Would you find Joshua 22, please? In Joshua chapter 22, this is after the land of Canaan had been conquered and it was beginning to be settled. I don't know how many people are familiar with this incident. It's not really a well-known incident in Old Testament history, but this is the incident of the, the extra altar that got built. In Joshua chapter 22, Joshua, he sends home the tribes that had decided that they were going to live on the eastern side of the Jordan River. That would be these two and a half tribes that we'll read about here in just a moment. And that all seems to be going well. That seems to be working out pretty good. That is, that is until Joshua 22 verse 10. Joshua 22 verse 10, when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of the Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad 
and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Rutro. You can't be doing that. You can't be going and making another altar. You can't go make your own altar separate from the altar of the rest of the people of God. You can't be doing that. That's just not right. And so when the rest of the Israelite people, when they heard of this, when they found out about this, they started hitting the panic button. Drop down to verse 11. Verse 11, the people of Israel heard of it and they said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Are are you kidding? We're going to have a civil war about this. We're actually going to have a knockdown, drag out fight about this. Why? Why would they react in that way? Drop down to verse 16. Verse 16, they said, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? These brethren came to the two and a half tribes and they said, what you're doing is breaking God's law. And not only are you breaking God's law, but you're doing that in absolute defiance. You know what you're doing. You're acting like a bunch of rebels. In fact, come to think of it, you're probably building that altar because you want to offer sacrifices to false gods. You want to be just like the pagans around you. That's what you're doing. You've got wicked motives. Wow. That went from like 0 to 60 in 5.2 seconds. They were just thinking the absolute worst of the rest of their brethren. They were assigning the worst possible motives to the people who were a part of those two and a half tribes. That is until verse 22, when those people who had built the altar, they finally got the opportunity to explain what they were doing. They said, hey, can we have an opportunity to just kind of tell you and give you some insight as to what we were going for there? Chapter 22, verse 22. The Mighty One, God the Lord. The Mighty One, God the Lord. He knows. God knows what we were doing. And furthermore, let all of Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, then do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, then may the Lord Himself take vengeance. Verse 24, though, no. That's not why we did those things. We did it from fear that in our time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? You see, these two and a half tribes, they said, we actually had a good intent behind building that altar. We did this to show our unity with the rest of Israel. We are geographically separated, but we wanted to make it known that we are still part of the people of God. We wanted our children to understand that those are our people and we are part of them and they are part of us. But I'm struck by what happened here and what caused this whole kerfuffle. That essentially half the congregation of Israel, they thought poorly of the other half of the congregation of Israel. And as a result, they ended up running to those wild extremes. Oh, I tell you what, I bet I know what they're doing down there. I bet they built that altar for a sinful purpose. I bet they built that altar because they're wanting to sacrifice to false gods and do all kinds of stuff to just hack God off. And the reality is it couldn't have been further from the truth. And sadly, I am afraid 
that we oftentimes are guilty of that exact same thing. You know, I find that it is a whole lot easier for me to just guess and assume and impugn the motives of my brethren when I disagree with them and to run to these wild extremes than it is to actually sit down and have a conversation and to find out the truth. It's a whole lot easier to see somebody doing something that eh, I'm not really uncomfortable with. And so I'll just kind of stand back and I'll just say, you know what, that looks liberal to me. And if you do that and you believe in that, then you know what, that makes you a liberal. Or I hear somebody say something offhandedly and you know what, that kind of sounds, eh, it's not really the word and the verbiage that I would use. You know what, that kind of sounds Calvinistic to me. And you know what, if you're saying that and you believe that, you know what, that makes you a Calvinist. Kind of a crazy extreme going to are we doing here? Maybe to even give a really modern and timely example of this kind of thing. Oh, you don't wear a mask. Well, that must mean you don't love your neighbor. You don't follow the teachings of Jesus. Or maybe conversely. Oh, you do wear a mask. Well, you know what? That means you're just a sheep. You can't think for yourself. You just do what people tell you to do. Let me ask you once again. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about our dealings with Christians. We're talking about our interactions and how we feel and how we communicate with one another. So I'll ask again, are we really ready to go stamping those kinds of extreme labels on our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we willing to do that when in all probability we know deep down that those labels probably do not accurately reflect who and what our brothers and sisters are and what they believe. We need to be wary of those kinds of extreme accusations. Sometimes we give voice to those accusations. Sometimes we just harbor those accusations in our mind. But we need to be very careful about that. Because all that does is it brings unfair charges against our brother, which in turn is going to create hostility and animosity. How much better to say instead, hey... Hey, I, I, I heard you say this, and I, I kind of I see what you're saying there, but have you ever thought about how this can lead to this, and it might end up leading to this? Can we talk about that? How much better to say, hey, I, 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 I hear what you're saying, I see, see where you're coming from, but have you ever considered this, this other perspective? Maybe you've not thought about this before. Can I share some ideas with you? Instead of just jumping to those conclusions and saying, I know why you built that altar. You built that altar because you are up to no good. How much better would it be to give our brother or our sister the benefit of the doubt and then simply sit down and try to understand each other because we assume the best of one another. In fact, really that rule leads directly into rule number four and that is when we need to remember, we need to remember that we don't have to agree on everything. You know, maybe the reason that we have disagreements sometimes is because we have come to the conclusion or we've been led to believe that we have to be in lockstep on every single matter. That if we do not have absolute uniformity, well then that means that we can never really have unity. But this is of course where passages like Romans the 14th chapter really help us out here. Would you look with me in Romans 14? In Romans 14, I do not want to get in too involved and preach this chapter too thoroughly because we'll get to Romans 14 later this year. But of course, one of the issues, of many issues, that first century Christians had to deal with was what to do with your steak that you bought down at Kroger in downtown Rome that you come to find out that that piece of sirloin, that piece of meat, it actually had come from an altar to Athena. 
Or it had been served, it had come from a temple to Zeus, some false god, some idol pagan god. What do you do with that meat? That, of course, was a topic of great discussion amongst first century Christians. Of course, you'd have some who would say, well, I can't have anything to do with that. I just can't. That's polluted. It's unclean. I need you to keep that away from me. And I don't think people need to be touching that kind of meat. People need to stay away from that. That's sinful. On the other hand, you had other Christians who said, eh, I don't see what the big deal is. It's just a piece of meat. doesn't mean anything to me. All those negative connotations associated with it, that's not part of my thought process. That doesn't affect me in any kind of way. And so, hey, I'm fine with eating that meat. Well, what do you do now? you got people kind of on disparate ends of the spectrum there. Well, who's right? Who's wrong? Well, Paul tells us, Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Paul says here, that everybody needs to operate within the realm of their own conscience. And they need to do that without bickering, without quarreling, without looking down on one another just because our brother or our sister chooses to do differently. In fact, after walking through all of that in a more step-by-step manner, Paul concludes the chapter by saying in verse 22, in verse 22 he says, The faith that you have those convictions that you have, those matters of opinion that you have, you keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Paul says that Christians need to respect one another's personal convictions even when those convictions are different from my own. You do what you need to do to have a clear conscience before God. I'm going to do what I need to do to have a clear conscience before God. And of course, there are lots of matters, lots of issues that fall into this big giant realm of of opinion. There are numerous issues of personal preference that the Bible does not legislate. There are numerous issues that are not of significance to the Lord. They are not important to the Lord. And Paul says we can differ on those things without dividing. Can I say that again? We can disagree. We can differ on some things without dividing. Like for example, when it comes to our worship and what we do collectively as the church. How many songs should you sing in worship? Two? Three? Four? What's the the appropriate number? Should we have just one service on Sunday or, or should we have two services on Sunday? What time of the day should we meet when we come together on the first day of the week? I believe all those are matters of indifference to the Lord. Those are not matters of divine revelation. And furthermore, it's not just those issues that have to do with our our coming together and what we do collectively. There's also lots of personal and, and individual choices that we have to make. And it seems like that list just grows more and more by the day. Like, Like which translation of the Bible should you read from? I know folks that have some really strong opinions about that. Should you celebrate holidays to Christians? Should they be involved in Christmas and taking any part of that or Halloween or any of those sorts of things? What about when it comes to schooling your children? Should you send your kids to public school or or should you homeschool? 
I know some folks that just become totally unglued when you start talking about that subject. What about another very relevant and timely hot-button issue? What about this issue of vaccinations? I hear so many strong convictions about the vaccination stuff. I know Christians who have lots of strong feelings, strong opinions about all those things, and you know what? That's all totally fine. It is totally fine to have strong convictions about those things. But here's the kicker. You need to keep that to yourself. You keep that in your home. Keep that amongst your family. Don't go try binding that on your brethren. That's one of the things Paul's bearing out in this chapter. And furthermore, don't look down on your brethren if they think about that and they decide about that differently from what you do. God gives us some liberty here to make our own decisions about those things and it does not have to affect our work as the church and it does not have to rupture our congregational unity. And I tell you this, if, if Jews and Gentiles in New Testament times, if they could learn how to get along, then surely we can learn how to get along provided we're willing to respect those principles that help us to understand that we do not have to agree on every single thing. That's important when disagreements come. That said, there are things in God's Word that are non-negotiable. There are things that are matters of truth. And when it comes to matters of truth, we need to remember to always speak the truth in love. Here's a little bit more of the overlap from this morning's sermon. Would you find Ephesians, the fourth chapter, please? In Ephesians 4, in this great chapter where Paul has talked so much about the expressed will of God. There are a number of things in Ephesians chapter 4 and in the letter to the Ephesians where the Lord has legislated matters of doctrine. I think specifically in chapter 4 about those, those seven ones, those things that do bring unity. There's one Lord and one faith and one body, and one baptism, etc. That is absolute truth for which there is, there is no wiggle room there. There is no place for negotiating. There's no place for compromise. Those are, those are matters where God has clearly communicated what it is that we need to believe and what we need to do. Well, the question is, what then do we need to do with that truth? Okay, God said it. What now do we do with that truth? Well, Paul tells us, Ephesians 4, verse 15, he says, rather you are to speak the truth in love, so that we can then grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. I will confess to you that I'm afraid that far too many times when I have disagreed with brethren over even doctrinal matters that I've done a really good job of speaking the truth and I've done a not so good job of speaking it in love. I want you to notice in this passage, Paul does not say, hey, as long as you got the truth, as long as what you're saying is the truth, hey, do it however you got to do it. You just shout it out if you have to. Go jam that down people's throat if you have to. Get harsh and abrasive and militant if you need to. Get ugly with people. Just you know, make them look like absolute fools and dummies if that's what needs to be done. As long as the truth is spoken. That's not what Paul says. What Paul says here is he is saying that it's not enough to just be right. And yes, I do want to be right. I want to be right with God. I want to do the right thing. But it's not enough just to speak the truth. We have to speak the truth in a loving way. Would you grab 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter? I want you to think about this chapter in a very specific way. We're all very familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What it says here about love, these characteristics, these qualities of love. 
As we read these verses, I want you to think about these qualities. And I want you to think about the last disagreement that you had with a brother or a sister in Christ. And you went to them and you're expressing that disagreement to them. It maybe even turned into maybe a bit of a fuss and a bit of a fight. What I want to ask is, is I want to ask, were these qualities of love evident in how you spoke the truth and in how you expressed those things? 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4. Love is patient. Were you patient when you spoke the truth? Love is kind. Did you present the truth in a kind way? Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Did you speak the truth arrogantly? It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. You know, the answer to the disagreements that existed in the church at Corinth, the answer to that was not, well, you just need to pack your stuff up And you need to go down the road and join yourself to another congregation. That wasn't the solution. And furthermore, the solution was not, you just need to round up all those people who disagree with you and don't see it your way. You should round all them up and just give them the boot and get them out of here. That's what you need to do with them. No. No, the answer was that those brethren needed to love each other more. And I wonder how many church splits and church divisions could have been avoided if when brethren disagreed, even when they disagreed over matters of truth, over doctrinal matters, I wonder how many of those could have been avoided if there had been real love in the discussion. That's certainly not to say that division still may not occur, even if truth is spoken, even by both sides in the most loving way possible. But you know what? Even if a division, even if a, even if a splitting of the ways, even if it does occur... We don't ever want it to be said of us that that was the result of somebody speaking the truth in an unloving way. If we're going to fight fair, then fighting fair means we need to do a heart check and we need to think about the connection with our heart and our lips. Which then brings me to this final rule for disagreeing with our brethren and how to do that in a godly way. And that is we just need to never ever forget the golden rule. In Matthew the 7th chapter, you know this verse. In Matthew 7, as Jesus is doing some preaching there in the Sermon on the Mount, He says this, which summarizes so much of Jesus' teaching. In Matthew 7 and in verse 12, Jesus says, Whatever it is that you wish others would do unto you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Uh, Do you ever see any of those advertisements? Sometimes they come in email, sometimes they're on websites, sometimes they even are on television, but be advertisements that will promote some kind of a a product or a service. And the way that they advertise it is they'll say, and put it in big letters on there, they'll say, if you just do this one thing, you can lose tons of weight. If you'll do this one thing, you can get rich overnight. And everything about that product or service, it's all kind of just tied up into that guarantee of doing that one thing. 
I'm always very skeptical about that stuff. I'm not a fan of it. I do not click on it when it comes in my email. I pay no attention to it when it pops up on my screen. It looks gimmicky to me. It looks hokey to me. It looks clickbaitish to me. And I'm afraid they're going to steal all of my money. But I would say this. What if everybody in the whole world got up tomorrow morning and they did one thing and the one thing that everybody did was Matthew 7 verse 12. What if everybody woke up tomorrow and said, I'm going to treat every person that I encounter the way that I would want them to treat me? What do you think would happen? I'd like to stand up here and say, well, I think the whole world would just change for the better and everything would be made right, but that probably wouldn't be true. I don't think Matthew 7 verse 12 would fix every problem in our world. I mean, I'd still have to deal with yard work. Matthew 7 verse 12 doesn't take care of mowing my lawn, so that would still be an issue. But, but if everybody did live by the golden rule, I'll say this. I think a lot of things would clear up considerably, don't you think? Now, while I certainly do not expect and I certainly cannot even ask everybody in the world to jump on my brilliant idea of International Golden Rule Day, even as I say that though, that is the expectation that God has for Christians, isn't it? That every day is Golden Rule Day. I mean, after all, are we not the people who believe that the man who spoke those words was divine, that he is the Son of God? Are we not the people who believe that the place where those words are recorded is the Bible, that it is in fact the living and abiding Word of God? Are we not the people who believe that, hey, we're supposed to be living by what that man spoke in that book and that furthermore, we're going to be judged by that book someday? And if the answer to all of those questions is yes, then wouldn't that affect how I treat people? Wouldn't that affect how I treat somebody, even somebody that I really, really disagreed with? Wouldn't that mean, just look at our list, wouldn't that mean, number one, that if I want to be treated with respect, that I need to treat others with respect? Wouldn't that mean that if I don't like being lashed at in anger, then I can't be lashing at people in anger? And doesn't that mean that if I want people to assume the best of me, and not impugn hateful and wrong motives, then, then I need to be willing to think the best of people. And doesn't that mean that if I don't want people trying to bind their personal convictions on me, then, then I don't need to be trying to bind my personal convictions on people. And furthermore, doesn't that mean that if I want the truth to be presented to me in a kind and loving way, then I need to always present the truth in a kind and loving way? You see, when you stop thinking about the golden rule, the golden rule ensures that we fight fairly. I want to be treated right, so I'm going to treat you right, and I'm going to do that in hopes that you will then reciprocate, reciprocate that fair treatment so that we can then work through our conflicts and we can find a peaceful resolution. And why? Because that's what Christians do. Now, I don't know what people in the world do. People in the world do all kinds of stuff. But Christians... Christians are people who are peacemakers. We're striving to be at peace with God and to be at peace with one another. God's family certainly is not perfect, at least not on this side of eternity it is not perfect. But His Word is perfect. 
And it guides us in all things pertaining to life and to godliness, and that includes how to disagree even with our brothers and sisters. One final verse. Go back to Acts 15 where we started. In Acts chapter 15, as heartbreaking as it is to read about Paul and Barnabas separating and going their separate ways and, I don't know, just, just one of the great tandems in the Bible, seeing that, that breakup occur. There is, nonetheless, in that very same passage, a, a glimmer of light and a glimmer of sunshine. Because after Paul and Barnabas, after they obviously had talked about this, they had debated about it, they had discussed it back and forth, the tensions kind of got a little testy and got a little heated, and ultimately they realized we're not going to be able to come to a mutual agreement here. The net result of that is actually, look at the end of verse 39, that Barnabas ended up taking Mark with him, and they sailed away to Cyprus. And then Paul chose Silas, and he departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. I want you to please notice that the net result of Paul and Barnabas' disagreement was actually more work being done in the kingdom of God. Not less. The kingdom didn't suffer as a result of this. The kingdom actually got stronger. And what I'm wondering is I'm wondering, could we maybe make that our standard? Could we make that kind of the... That's the bare minimum that we're going to shoot for. Maybe best case scenario is when we disagree, we're going to talk it through and maybe reach an agreement. But even if that's never the case, we're going to hope that in the very end, the least that's going to happen is that God's kingdom is going to continue to go forward. That there's going to be more good done. That there's going to be stronger bonds built. That there's going to be better service in the kingdom of the Lord. In fact, as you probably know, Paul several years, several years after this in some of his writings, he had nothing but good things to say about his brother Barnabas. And I think that's because Paul and that's because Barnabas, they both understood what it means to fight fairly. And you and I, we need to learn how to do the exact same thing even today. Now in just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to be led in a song of invitation. That song is going to give all of us an opportunity to search within our souls and search where we are in our walk with God. It may be this evening as you do some of that self-examination that you come to realize that, you know what, my issue is not so much that I'm fighting with other people or that I'm fighting with brothers and sisters. My main issue is, is, is I'm at odds with the Lord because I'm not serving Him as I should. In fact, it may be that you're not even serving Him at all because you're not even a Christian. That can all change this evening. You can go in just a matter of minutes to being an enemy of God, at war with Him, to getting that completely turned around, you can now be on God's side, fighting with Him and fighting for Him. If you're of an age of accountability and you understand that Jesus is the Christ, He is the Son of God, if you believe that with all of your heart, if you're willing to confess that before this good audience tonight, if you're ready to change, to turn away from sin and to turn to God, that's called repentance, then this evening it would be our distinct pleasure and it would just be the greatest joy for us to baptize you in water for the forgiveness of your sins. If you do that, God says that will make you a Christian. You'll be a part of the family of God. That doesn't mean being a part of God's family is always going to be roses and sunshine all of the time. There will be some difficulties along the way. And sometimes even those difficulties will be with our brothers and sisters. I think a lot of that's just due to the fact that we all just so badly want to do the right thing and we want to go to heaven. 
And so we want to be about the business of helping each other to go to heaven. If you're not a Christian this evening, we're ready to help you to become one. If you are a Christian but you're not living like one, brother or sister, this is an opportunity for you to make that known. If it's a public nature, make that known that you want to correct some things in your life. You want to ask for the prayers of your brothers and sisters here. We're ready to do that as well. Whatever your need may be this evening, you simply need to make that known by coming to the front. Do that while we stand and while we sing.